back to The Long Short. I'm Drew Nicholl and I'm flying solo today as my co-host Tom Kyo is currently attending the Amos Singapore Forum. Regular listeners will have already heard his episode where he spoke to attendees to discuss the key takeaways from the event. But if you haven't, it's well worth your time once you're done with this episode, of course. But with that said, I'm still in very good company today as I am joined by Bob Sloan, managing partner at the financial technology and data company S3 Partners, which some listeners may recognize as the provider of their short interest data on their Bloomberg terminals. Bob is the author of Don't Blame the Shorts, an excellent walkthrough of the historical precedent for politicians, economists, regulators, and pretty much anybody blaming short sellers for everything that has ever gone wrong in financial markets and well worth your time. And more recently, he has also made his TV debut on Netflix's series, Eat the Rich, which told the story of the infamous GameStop saga. Bob, you are very welcome to The Long Short. Thank you so much for having me. So as my introduction indicated, there's so much to discuss here and I have so many questions. So let's just jump straight in if that's okay. As as I mentioned, S3 Partners made its name with data sets that showed which stocks were most in demand to be borrowed as part of the securities lending mechanism behind short selling. Just so we're on the same page for any listeners that might not be fully aware, can you just briefly explain why that data is so powerful for various types of investors on both the long and the short side? Sure. First of all, thank you for the very, very, very nice introduction. The reason why short interest data is so powerful is because it solves for what does the market know that I do not know? And what do I know that the market does not know? And there's a cat and mouse game between what is known and what is not known. And short interest is a key component to figuring all that out. Perfect. So typically short interest is a, or or the data around short interest is a good example of the types of insights that retail investors really just cannot get a hold of unless they have access to a Bloomberg terminal or a contract with one of the various data providers that are out there. But for a while now, S3 has been leading the way and trying to even the scales somewhat here by releasing some really timely short interest data on social media. And in fact, I first discovered S3 many years ago through your colleague, Ihor Dusanowski, on Twitter, in fact, who does a fantastic job in publishing some very simple but very important metrics on short interest, as well as daily answering some very important questions around how short selling actually works. I believe as of now, he has an enviable 81,000 followers on Twitter, which really speaks to the value placed on this data. And this is clearly a very conscious effort by yourself and and S3 more broadly to get this data out there. So could you just explain why you do this? Sure. So I think it goes back to your first question, which is sentiment. You know, we look for, as a data company, we look for words that everyone uses where there's 18 definitions. Sentiment would be one of them. To us, it means concentration risk. So short interest is, I think, a way of saying how much negative sentiment is there in a particular stock and what does that say about a stock? And it's a key piece of information. There's also sentiment on the long side. We actually have a new product that does that also on the Bloomberg terminal. So you're saying sentiment means concentration risk and crowding and short interest is a way of expressing that. And that's why it's such a key component for 
financial markets because people want to know not only the good news, but is there something bad? Do I need to know that as an investor or does my team need to know that as an investor as they enter or exit positions in the marketplace? So we've been very, um, very conscious of the fact that, you know, you don't hear the word public service that much anymore. Um, our politicians don't use it that much. Uh, our civil servants don't use it that much. But there is a public service involved when you have something that is so key to decision making. And when GameStop happened and the MemeStop phenomenon happened, you know, all of a sudden we found 130 to 140,000 people showed up at our doorstep on Twitter. You know, the firm has 40 something thousand people following it. Ehor has 80,000 people following it. If you include LinkedIn, you know, it's a lot more. And we had to make a decision right then and there that we're in the public arena, whether we like it or not. And what do we stand for? You know, what's we, we, there is a public service element to it because so much of the angst with public markets is that speed can be bought. Better information can be bought. Timing can be bought. You know, all these things can be bought. And there's a definite disadvantage. And so we made a very conscious decision that even though our data is seen in many different papers and, 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 and news media platforms around the world, we made a conscious decision that um, the mechanics of the marketplace needs a voice. And we were going to do that on our Twitter handle. And we were going to make the same information that we make available to the public, to the professional rather, available to the public, you know, on a, on a periodic basis. We felt like we had a, a, a public duty to do that because it's so important. Well, personally, I think it, it's it's admirable that you do. And, and the fact that uh, Ehor and, and, and the rest of the S3 team do answer those very basic questions around how short interest might be over 100%, the very mechanics of why someone might choose to lend securities and the revenue that might come from that. And they answer these questions time and time again. And I think that just shows where the level of understanding is and why it is so important to go through these because there's just such a huge community out there of people that want to learn, but maybe sometimes this information can be a little bit hard to decipher. Yeah, well, the, the, so, so let's just go back to that for a second. So the reason why there's such a thirst for this knowledge, and we're always astounded by how many people actually want to know the deep mechanics of how financing works how prime brokerage works, you know, what, how, does the, how do the markets actually operate? The reason why there's such a thirst is because in the mainstream media, these things get totally ignored because they're not seen as actually newsworthy or repeatable. And they don't actually fit into a narrative of who's winning and who's losing. And, you know, that's, that's neither here nor there as a value judgment. It's just how it is. So we found that there's this niche of really hardcore uh, folks that want to learn. And we've become the Twitter handle that explains market infrastructure and how things work. And as you say, that is that was true before GameStop, but has obviously exploded since GameStop. And, and I, I really want to dive into that. But just before we do, I just wanted to pick up on the point you made around sentiment, because I know that another topic close to your heart is this quite ethereal idea of alternative data. 
and what an alt data set is and how that has changed over time. And that seems particularly pertinent question when it comes to this idea about sentiment, because how you manage that, even if you say sentiment on Reddit or sentiment on Twitter or broader market sentiment is extremely difficult to distill in any meaningful way. And I just want to give you one example because um, we've mentioned Twitter and, and I use TweetDeck and I have two tabs open next to each other, one that searches for uh, alternative investments and which is fairly highbrow, I would say. And so that's where you pick up a lot of the, the mainstream news. And then if you also filter for hedge funds, which, you know, broadly interchangeable when you're talking about that community, it is a wildly different community of people. And if you were to talk about sentiment filtering by those two different aspects, it's 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 it could not be more extremely different. So I just just to put this to you around how important is sentiment as sort of the the latest alternative data set and at what point do we stop talking about alternative data and just start talking about data i think we're already there actually so if you're looking for a a definition of what alternative data is i think the lines have been blurred so much that there's no such thing everything is alternative data because everything can be combined with everything else and i um you know, yesterday was fooling around with chat GPT and asked it to write a poem about S3 and it did it beautifully. So I look at that now, is that alternative data? And the threat of GPT is, you know, AI generally, I, I, I don't know. I have a little different take on it. You know, when Da Vinci was creating these great masterpieces, did he paint the hands? Did he paint the lower left-hand corner? Or did he focus on the Mona Lisa's eyes and the Blue Hills in the background? Because that's really what his expertise was. My guess is that was AI, right? You know, your your school of, of people learning from you, that was AI back then. And he used the tools necessary to produce a masterwork. So I'm looking at chat GPT like that. It's basically a tool to help you focus where you can produce your masterwork and all data, you know, it used to mean everything, I guess, not in a desktop today, it's everything. So I'm not sure that all data actually has a meaning anymore. It just means something new and different that you can combine to make a factor that helps you create alpha signaling. It is fascinating, though, just I mean, there obviously has been an explosion of of AI tools, but everybody is talking about uh, ChatGPT at the moment. And it's so interesting in in the completely shines a new light on how people may source data in the future. And when you think about how data is used currently in terms of how Google searches are scraped and the various analytics that are available there. And what that might mean when people are asking potentially very personal questions to chat GPT for answers or talking about investment decisions. And and, and as an increasing amount of information is filtered through this tool or or sort of whatever comes out to be the dominant um, resource in in the coming years, it, it really does seem like all data will be included if what some of these entrepreneurs claim um, the final form will be is true in that it will 
it will basically be the filter of the sum total of human knowledge. And coming back to what you were saying about being this this equalizer of uh, data between retail and institutional at the moment, it could potentially be game changing from that point of view. Well, I have a, maybe. Um, so my take is is that you know any AI chat GPT is 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 knowledge without necessarily understanding. And so if you have the understanding, you should be able to put that knowledge to work better. And it might actually invert the timeline of people's careers. If you can transition later on in life and use this and use your life experiences in a way that's easy to use, I think you become more valuable. So I think there's a whole bunch of different questions. You know, I could be totally wrong. Um, but there's, it raises a lot of really interesting questions about how to use it and what you're comfortable replacing. That's interesting. So what you're touching on there is, is sort of this nagging concern that we're all innovating ourselves out of a job in some capacity or other. Yeah, but they're just tools, right? I think it helps you do your job better. That's where I come out at it. It's not a threat. It's a tool. Hey, you know, if you're an investment banking analyst at Goldman Sachs and you're starting and you can get these things done and everybody knows that job should take two hours a day, but it takes 20 because there's a process. There's a there's a bit of a uh, I'll call it a hazing where people want to know that you can do the work and you can stay up all night and do all these things. And if you have an AI tool that lets you do 22 hours of the work in two, um, well, you know, that's uncomfortable for some people because it takes the meaning and process and the, 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 the regiment out of the life that they know. Well, you know, you have to adjust. AMA's Next Generation Manager Forum, now in its 10th year, returns to London on Tuesday the 16th of May. The forum provides a platform for the exchange of ideas and the development of peer networking for senior individuals at alternative asset management businesses managing up to $500 million in hedge and private credit assets. Throughout the afternoon, speakers will discuss next generation managers 10 years on, the war for talent, how to acquire and keep it, ESG implementation and non-negotiables, and investor relations, retention and maintenance. Register today to learn more from the Stellar Speaker lineup and engage and network with colleagues, both old and new. We look forward to welcoming you. Well, and that's interesting when you take this back to this uh, this point around the growth of Reddit and Wall Street Bets and the communities that come about and things have changed a lot and there is a, uh, a democratization now in the sense that people can go online and and share in a way that they couldn't and this if i'm understanding you correctly is just the next phase of that evolution yeah I, I think so you know um the the one thing that that being on netflix and i thought they did a really good job and we can we can talk a little bit about that is i thought they told the story in the right way and it was a very clever way that they told that story because it was about people that got out, people that stayed on and got out or people that stayed in. And it was really about a mania and how that mania started and what happened. And I, I thought it was a really well done. It took me a couple actually times to view it, to actually understand what the director was trying to say. 
And he was truly talking about the entry and exit points of people in that particular uh, particular mania in particular time. So, so let's actually touch on that because it, it is fascinating. In the first instance, just that Netflix picked up on it and, and felt the need to, to serialize it. And then what I found interesting was that they did, I seemed quite sincerely try to bring in different voices. And you obviously had the very animated Redditors that, that came in and, and had their particular set of views. And then there was uh, you and, and a few others sort of on the other side. Could I just ask you to expand a little bit about what that process was like? And were you concerned that it was going to, to come across in another way? I mean, you, you mentioned that you had to watch it a few times to sort of get the message. I Well, you have no control. So that's number one. You know, Netflix comes in and for the, I think the audience, we all have it in our, I mean, I would presume most people have Netflix in, in, in their, in their, on their TV and, or some other streaming service. And the, the point is, is that I was a little reticent. I actually was very wary about actually doing that series. And they just explained to me very clearly. They said, well, Bob, uh, how many people do you think have watched English language subtitled foreign movies since 1920 and how much money has been invested in producing that? I was like, I don't know, a lot. And the audience is quite small, right? And they said, we did Squid Games, which is in Korean, subtitled in English, and 125 million people around the world watched that. So we are a massive platform. And quite frankly, it's an opportunity of a lifetime for you. And when you hear that, you go, okay, fine, I'm in. And being there and being on uh, Netflix is a, um, it's a really a surreal experience. There's 40 people in your office. There's cameras everywhere. There's a lot of different things going on. You have no control over the questions and you have no control over um, the edits. They interviewed, interviewed me for nine hours straight no breaks and it was a little bit of a test of wills to see who would crack and um you know i thought the beats of the story and the questions they asked and the way it came out was uh, was was great and i'm not sure how much you can say here but just in terms of the tone of the questions obviously if i hope i'm characterizing this correctly but you were there very much just to sort of um again, answer those those simple questions, set the scene, allow people to understand the mechanics that maybe had fallen by the wayside. You know, I mentioned that um, the classic, how can short interest be over 100% that comes up again and again, and will continue to. So in terms of the tone of the questioning, did you feel like they were trying to sensationalize or did you feel like they were trying to tell both sides and, and, and not so much create villains and, and narratives? I think they were trying to do both. Actually, I think they were they they needed. Well, the villain is easy, right? You know, it's 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 the the uh, the and I don't think it was villainous, by the way. But the the villain is easy. You know, this is the eat the rich. That's the, the title says more than anything I could explain. Um, but I, the the questions were actually fair. They were not one sided. They tried to actually balance it, and and my role was really to be the voice of reason to say, okay, this is the way things actually work. And here are the problems with regulation. And here are the problems with um, 
you know, socially mobilized investing and, you know, here are the things that, that, that we feel about them. So they cast me as that, as that, that voice of reason and the data points that we pointed out, particularly around short interest. I'm not sure we'll ever get to a point where people agree on this. Uh, we certainly have a view of short interest and float. We think it's silly that when a short sale happens, you do not include the long position that's created by the short sale in the float. That's why it can never be over 100%, but we can say that ad infinitum, ad nauseum, <laughs> forever and ever and ever, and we will still have this conversation that says it's 140%. So, um, but we will keep trying and we will keep repeating what we think is correct. And more power to you. It's, 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 uh, it's an uphill battle, but, but someone has to do it. And, and actually, just to zoom out sort of before Netflix, and, and, and you mentioned that your social media presence exploded around GameStop. Do you feel like maybe just taking this right back to my first question around the power of, of short interest data that we're sort of in a in a post GameStop environment where everybody's looking for the next meme stock, everybody's hypersensitive around short squeezes. And and that's very obvious and mostly spoken about in the retail space. And I know that Wall Street Bets is, is still alive and well. But do you find that the conversations you're having show a greater appreciation of this type of um, signals on across all aspects of traders, you know, all the way through to the institutionals and, and everybody else? There's a reason why we're the best selling app in the history of the Bloomberg terminal. You have to avoid the grenade. And the grenade is usually on the short side. Now, in today's market, you know that they're making money. So but it's a very volatile bet. You need the best information you can get. And we think we provide that information, obviously, that uh, gives people an advantage so they can make the right decisions. So is there a gap in the market now that there is this sentiment um, value now added to stocks? You know, stocks are not all born equal. And that comes through very loudly in the Netflix series where people were very uh, emotionally attached to certain stocks. And that's a large part of why GameStop and, and Toys R Us and others um, attracted the interest that they did, whereas some other more mundane high street brand may not necessarily attract that um, Reddit interest. Is there an alternative data set out that, that assigns a sentiment score to certain stocks as they uh, approach sort of a 20% uh, short interest threshold? Yeah, actually, um, we have just published that um, side by side to what we have on Bloomberg. I hate to turn this into an advertorial, but um, the uh, but, but that's exactly what we're, we're doing. Uh, there's a there's a, a holy grail out there, which is what is crowded on the short side, what's crowded on the long side, and how much money does that mean to me? How much exposure do I have to the crowd? And am I comfortable with that? That's the risk that you drew that you're talking about. Do I have $20 million of exposure to the crowd? 50 million, a hundred million, how much exposure? And that is the Holy grail for people because that's exactly where the pain points happen. And that's where negative returns happen. That's where sharp ratios deteriorate. So all these things, bad things happen as you're at the point of the spear and you have no idea that you've been stuck. So for any journalists listening, uh, the, the big question that seems to be floating around a lot is, are we going to get another GameStop? Is this now a feature of the market? We just did. 
<laughs> was it GameStop was the next GameStop, but yeah. And, and by the way, that's that's real, right? Because people trade when there's volatility. They trade when they know that the, there's a 50-50 chance of the market going up or down. That's a good bet. And um, maybe it's 55, 45. That's even better bet. And, you know, that's what they look for. So the risk of a, a sentiment squeeze is just a new feature of our market to factor in? 100%. Which makes sense, right? Because everything that we have in our pocket, our phones, is public space. Our opinions are not public space. The data that comes out of our phones are public space. Alt data is public space. So it is the the madness of crowds, right? And or the wisdom of crowds clashing on a day-to-day -day basis expressed in a stock price. And that brings me on nicely actually to, to my next question, which is just to, to jump forward a little bit and, and look at the tools of the future. We've mentioned AI and we've mentioned um, sentiment and the way that's being uh, incorporated into investment decisions. And you, you just mentioned uh, mobile phones there and the fact that everything we do is uh, digital now and everybody's posting everything on social media, yada, yada. And there's a lot of almost philosophical debates around public-private information. We talked about whether uh, search histories on, on ChatGPT or other tools is potentially a goldmine waiting to be uh, scraped. So obviously you're at the forefront of this. Where do you, where do you look for for the next data set or, or where do you see the next tools coming from? You know, there's an economy of APIs out there. I think that's a really interesting term. And that's something we're focused on because that's really the bridge between alt data and all data. What can you combine together? What's the combinations that give you the results that you're looking for? And so it's an ever, ever, yeah, it's an ever changing, you know, it's an ever changing. If you like puzzle solving and or uh, creative solution solving, uh, you, you can make a career out of that for sure. And if, if, if you're right, then there is still a career to be had and it's not all going to be um, black boxes from here on in. That's what I think. I, I, I highly doubt. First of all, there's a massive self-incentive not to put yourself out of a job. You know, so one of the things that, that always struck me, and I'll give you a real life example of that, is um, the, the mainframe environments that support most big money center banks. Now, we have an iPhone most of us, um, and or, you know, uh, Android, some Samsung phone, you know, there's two choices. And then we go home and we have our desktops are probably uh, Apple product um, and or Samsung TV. Go into anybody's office now that most of us are back in the office. What do you see? You see Microsoft. So the greatest marketing ever firm in the world, which is Apple, cannot crack the business space. It's something like that. There's a massive self-incentive not to be replaced. And people figure out the uh, defense mechanisms, but also use the offense just enough to where there's this, there's a stasis. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. And maybe I should close by giving you the leeway that you didn't get at Netflix. Is, is there anything that you wish you had been asked or wish that had been on the show? And is there, maybe to put it another way, bringing it back to Short's interest, is there, if there's one fact or one truth to short selling that you wish 
everybody could wake up and know tomorrow, what would that be? Why do we react to it the way we do? It's the most unbelievably emotional thing. I mean, people go just really, uh, you know, off the deep end with this particular financial vehicle. And I, you know, the book I wrote tries to explain that is that our emotions are constant. The financial vehicles change over time. The stakeholders around the table are constant. They don't change their reactions. It's just the financial vehicles. And so if we got in touch a little bit more with our emotions, I think we could project the future a little bit better. Excellent. Well, as I say, I, I will I will end as I began. Um, Bob Sloan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, listeners out there, don't blame the shorts. Read the book. Eat the rich. Lots of instructions on Netflix. It's uh, well worth your time. And uh, make sure to follow S3, Ehor, everyone on Twitter to get the latest information that you won't get elsewhere. Um, thank you so much for joining us on The Long Short. Thank you. And I'm on LinkedIn. I drop all the time too. So thank you. The Long Short was brought to you by AMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to The Long Short on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, AMA.org. Thanks for listening.